Welcome to the Same But Different podcast, a show that celebrates humanity, the ways we love others, the ways we keep love from coming in. We're going to dig deep. This show brings a dash of vulgarity and a whole lot of audacity to the Enneagram. If you're looking to know yourself on a deeper level, nurture healthier relationships, foster richer connections, and improve communication to make that happen, then you're in the right place, my friend. Hi, I'm your host, Amy, Enneagram alchemist and a fiercely supportive sister stepping in stride beside you. Are you ready to feel fucking seen? Are you ready to see others? Because I'm ready to ask those questions. The very things we're trying to avoid are exactly what we need to embrace in order to grow. So kick back. Take off your bra, get comfy, and let's fucking do this. Okay. All right. Welcome back to the Same But Different podcast. I am very excited to have my friend Mandy on today. She is a grief coach and author. She has the Restorative Grief podcast. She is a speaker. She has a Facebook support group, and I'm sure a shitload more than just that. Mandy, welcome. Did I miss anything? Oh, I'm sure plenty, but it doesn't matter. Hi, Amy. <laughs> We've been chatting for like a solid 30 minutes already. So good. About everything. So yeah, I don't know really what is left to say. I think we covered everything. I think okay. we had all the good points. <laughs> so this is it. This is the end of the podcast. It was a great talk. No. Thank so, you for listening. Yeah. Mandy and I connected through our mutual friend, Melissa. Mm. Because you guys had done a series on grief. And that was my introduction to you. And it came right before the passing of my grandma and helped me through my very first huge grief experience. I had never experienced real, real true grief like that before with, with a family member loss, I should say in that way. Um, and it was very powerful for me. And I saw that throughout my family. I was able to see my family's grief through the lens of the Enneagram, thanks to you and Melissa's beautiful work. And it has served me. It's continued to be the most powerful piece of, I don't know what you would call it, like collaboration with the Enneagram maybe. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because it, it, that intersection of grief and the Enneagram, I think is how we've been approaching it because there really are so many overlapping strings between the two topics, right? And that's how Melissa and I even were drawn into each other at first, because shadow work brings up all the grief we've never attended in our stories, all of those old wounds and grief work really can't be done until we acknowledge that we have those old wounds or that we see our patterns and recognize how we're continuing to kind of reinforce narratives that we don't necessarily want to live within, whether that's an active grief event uh, attached to a death, or if it's a grief event that we just experienced that didn't have to do with someone passing away. And so it's a, an incredibly interesting and fascinating area to study. So I'm really grateful that what we brought changed so much for you. It, me too. Me too. It <laughs> was very powerful. And I was able to even give that information to my husband and say, look, this is likely what's going to happen in the next few months. We knew the loss was coming. Um, and I want you to be prepared for what that could look like. And that it helped him. It helped him help me, which in as someone who leads with two, it helped allow someone to support me. And whew, that's my hardest thing. That's my hardest thing. So thanks for being there for me without even knowing it. Hey, no problem. Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. No big deal. So how in the hell does one get into grief work? Like what was it that made Mandy say, this is for me? 
Yeah. I mean, it's never something I wanted to do. And I don't remember a year in my life where I've survived without a loss. We've lost so many family members. And then you add in any other type of loss that's not connected to death, like a move or a divorce or a breakup or a disappointment or a missed opportunity. All of those different things existed in my life since I was little. And then when my grandfather died in 2014, I was pretty devastated because I was finally pregnant after years of infertility and miscarriages. And I was really disappointed that he wasn't going to get to meet my kid. And then my mom died a year after a little over a year after my daughter was born. And that really sent me down a spiral. It became this seven week period of, uh, deciding, or excuse me, seven day period of deciding that I will put my head down and do the practical that I need to do to get through losing mom and, and take care of belongings and legal requirements and whatever's needed. And then at the end of that week, I'm going to decide to grieve or not because I've always been a very guarded person. As you know, I lead with a type eight and I'm a social eight. So everybody's wellness around me is what really mattered. And so I spent a very long time after she died, deciding that this is worth it because this will affect everyone around me. This will affect my kid. This will affect the next grief event. Cause I'm not naive. Everyone around me will be dying at some point, whether I'm there to witness it or not. Uh, and so it, it transitioned me pretty significantly into the world of grief and really learning more about it. It wasn't until 2020, we kicked off the year with another miscarriage um, and a whole lot of trauma from a former workplace in my life. In addition to death anniversaries, including my mom, that I just was like, I cannot tolerate this world and its lack of literacy around grief anymore. And as I was watching covid kind of sweep across the U S I'm on the West coast and it hadn't reached us yet. Uh, I was wondering what kind of a world we were about to enter into. So the day that they closed down the schools for two weeks, I, I knew I said, well, this is going to be generational. We're about to experience generations of untended grief globally. I can't function like that. I just won't live in that world. And I don't want to leave a world like that for my kid and for her peers and even though my daughter is so little, she was in kindergarten at the time. All I could think of was she is going to be a leader too. Like she's going to, she's experiencing it now in my life. She's going to experience it and express it somehow. How can I craft a world and craft a community where that is a safe thing to do? And there's no minimizing and no platitudes and no dismissal. So I decided to write a book. I, I chose after losing my job because of COVID to spend that time telling my story and writing a guidebook is a 31 day guidebook, um, at the intersection of grief and faith, because I was involved pretty heavily. I was a worship leader for 16 years in a church in my town. And I had stepped down from leading worship a couple years prior, but it didn't matter because I loved those people. And I wanted them to know better how to handle grievers because as much as they love and as much as they know, and they, want to be supportive. They don't necessarily know what to say, do, or how to support someone who's grieving without handing them scriptures or without saying, okay, well, it's been two months. Let's get you back in service. So I wrote this book and realized very quickly that my whole career is pivoting because three months after I started writing the book, there was a wildfire that took out 2,500 homes right in our town. So my immediate, uh, 
practice became, well, let's see if this book is worth its weight. Right. And I started an online grief coaching group for the majority of people who had lost their homes. And to this day, a lot of my clients are survivors of that fire. So it's been a solid three years now that I've been doing this professionally. And prior to that, I was speaking and sharing my stories and, and it still is kind of blowing my mind that this is a career path I chose because like you, we said off air, right? There's no end to the learning and there's no moment where we've said, okay, great. I did it. I've been certified or I've graduated or I have accomplished a thing and, or I've served every type of griever. There is a bereaved parent and a sad divorcee. And you know what I mean? There's like no end point. So, uh, that is how I went into grief coaching. It sounds like you're just, you've been in the last three years that you've been doing this work. What I'm hearing is that you've been constantly affirmed that this is the path for you. Yeah. It feels like coming home. It felt like a place where I could create my own sense of meaning in the world. And I think that that's really a crucial part of the grieving process, which obviously I was also going through at the time and still am. Uh, but that's naive to think that any of us are not at some point grieving or are maybe not realizing that what we carry is connected to grief or could be grieving. And so finding all of these different people and experiences and classes and just moments in myself that really do feel like kismet where you have a moment of exhaling that feels like this is, this is exactly it. This is where I'm supposed to be. Not because I couldn't possibly do anything else and be happy, but because there is so much meaning and energy that exists in this space that feels like sunshine every time I step out. I mean, I'll step out of a coaching call and it could be an incredibly heavy, devastating loss that I'm helping someone sit with and comprehend and wrap their brains around. And I get out of the meeting and I'm invigorated. I feel like I could run 10 miles, not because I'm like, oh, that was great. But because I'm seeing someone come back to life, I'm seeing someone see themselves differently and in a way that they're able to become curious and compassionate toward this very human and natural thing they're experiencing. It's, it's nothing I would trade. This is so hard. Don't get me wrong, but it is so, it's worth it. You found the beauty in the hard. Yeah. You found that. And you said something that I think is really important here. At least for me, it is. You mentioned grief literacy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that it had come into my brain other than maybe the last few years of my life that we grieve outside of death. Because remember I said earlier, oh, I never had a grief, a grief, mm -hmm. or I guess I never had a a family member lost, but even that language before my grandma passed, I thought, oh, I've never grieved before. So I would love to kind of define grief a little bit for people like myself who think it's only tied to death. Yeah. Grief literacy was really like that phrase was what I drove with when people said, well, what are you doing now? Um, because yeah, I'm certified as a grief coach and I'm certified as a life coach and whatever, and all these different other certifications, but I didn't want to say, well, guys, I'm life coaching now because people disrespect that as a career unjustifiably, if you ask me, but nonetheless, yeah. grief literacy just means learning more about this concept without the fear. We have this fear of death as if we don't talk about it, we won't quote unquote cause it. If we can avoid it, it won't happen to us. I think that grief and bereavement, they are different things. And so that's one part that we can start with. Bereavement is when someone is grieving because there's been a death. Grief is a 
experience that comes out of the emotional and mental and physical and spiritual disconnections that we encounter when we're, in my opinion, outside of our values, when we have pursued something that caused us to come away from the core of who we believe we are, who we are pursuing or what we want, we're going to experience these onslaught, this onslaught of emotions that hurts for lack of a more sophisticated way of saying it, right? Like it hurts. And when we can recognize if something hurts me, it's okay to say that I'm grieving. Then we have given ourselves more permission in that moment to become fully alive than we've ever had. The idea that grief is a disappointment or that grieving is a weakness is so asinine to me. I could shake that every person I see that says it because people say it all the time. And you know, we've got this great stereotype in Western culture about the manly man and the stiff upper lip, or I was watching, uh, the bachelor the other night, because that is my go-to escapism right now. And they had this whole episode about being a bad bitch and bad bitches don't cry. And I was like, are you kidding me? Let your tears. I like get her on the phone. I don't know who this person is. Get her on the phone. She deserves to know it's okay to be hurt by feeling rejected. And yet we think our strength comes from stiff upper lip. And the reality is as an eight, I can tell you my strength has served me for so long to the point where my body is breaking down. And when we allow ourselves to see vulnerability in our emotions, in our mental state, in our thoughts, in our bodies, and in our connections to people around us and our spirits, we start to recognize that strength has a different definition. People have wanted us to be super strong and super stiff upper, stiff upper lip because it serves them because we are, and this might just be my elder millennial cusp Gen X or like being really pissed off about the state of the world, but it, this world around us wasn't designed for our wellness. It was designed for our productivity to really keep us thriving and serving a machine. Well, I have taken myself out of the cogs of the machine and I am still beholden to a lot of it. And it's really difficult. But when I value my rest over my productivity, I can actually start to live in a way that my shoulders don't sit near my ears. I can start to live in a way where my body isn't sick every single time I take a vacation or a break because I'm actually resting in the in-between instead of going as hard as possible just to make someone else feel happy or satisfied. So that's a long way to say grief is everywhere. We just have to learn to recognize it and give ourselves permission to move through it without shame or shooting all over ourselves. Yeah. And denying ourselves this, our humanity, right? That that's part exactly. of humanity. Yep. It's that's exactly be it. Whole, be whole. If you really, if you're not allowing all of you to show up and what can be more human than pain and disappointment and loss. I think that we inherently carry a lot of shame that we are human. We've been you know, told that we have to fit into a certain mold based on our community. Right. So if you look at the faith community that I came out of, not specifically mine, but just the global, like West, I guess, Western Christianity, right. It's very performance driven. There's a lot of behavior management. And so my humanity in some areas of the country is dismissed as unimportant, as demonic, as bad, as dangerous, why would you ever go down that road and want to honor your humanity? You should deny your humanity. Okay. So that's a source of grief. If you're realizing, oh, I'm valuable, but my faith says otherwise, or the way I've believed and practiced my faith. Um, you have 
part of our culture that would say, well, you're not actually fully human because your rights are because of, you know, historically your skin tone is the wrong color. And so you're dealing with this historical racism or a horrible treatment of you as a people group. And then you're having to decide, am I worth grieving? Do I have the privilege of grieving? And, and a lot of people don't like, they don't have the access or the security to grieve appropriately that to themselves, right? Like, so it's a matter of survival to not grieve and see our humanity as valuable or to see ourselves as vulnerable. There's so many things that uh, feed into a person's ability to see themselves as human, but even as a human worth this kind of attention, it's actually partly why I love using Enneagram with grievers who are familiar with the framework, because I can invite them to see themselves compassionately in a way that maybe they haven't before when, like you were saying, when you see patterns and you recognize, oh, I'm drawn to the same type of person. No wonder I keep getting hurt. Cause I'm showing up in this relationship, hoping that this person will be different than the last one, but I haven't changed. And how, oh my God, I have an archetype. Now I can see it both in them and me. Now I can do some inner work that actually allows me some real meaningful pathways forward. Yeah. Hell yes. Well, <laughs> when, when did you make the connection, like that intersection of your grief work and the Enneagram? When did that come together for you? Hmm. you? A long time ago, before I ever met Melissa or really even found myself as an eight, I was first learning about it because my husband was really into it. He's a five. And so he, of course, learned about it way before I did. And <laughs> deep dived into it and was like, you should really, you should probably learn this theory. If you're going to keep complaining about that thing, just con for years. <laughs> and I don't remember exactly what it was that I finally just broke down and said, fine, let me take a test and see right at the beginning. Well, I tested almost equally, I think within like one point of each other of three, seven and eight. And so he laughed and said, okay, well you're aggressive. So there's that. And I was like, excuse me. I think he meant assertive. Uh, asserting think, no, I'm <laughs> how dare you? Um, what I found was that I was working through my own stuff, my own grief. I encountered the Enneagram really intentionally in the months after my mom's death. I went on this, um, on a spiritual retreat and spent some time. It was just, just a silent spiritual retreat for a few days and tried to dig into it, to ask some questions of myself and, and the three never really fit. And so I struggled a lot and I kept seeing people using it to justify their behavior. And so I got really offended and angry with them thinking like, oh, I don't know that mine fits me. And I don't think I'm very healthy if I'm this three that doesn't make sense to me, but I know that that's not okay. <laughs> and it was later when I found, okay, that I think I'm an eight. What does that mean for me? If I'm an eight, that it started to make a lot more sense. I could look backwards and say, well, this is where grief started when I was six years old. Oh my God this tool is going to save my brain from trying to overthink uh, and protect myself over and over and over again, as I'm trying to process all of this old, all these old wounds and this trauma. And so as I saw it beginning to benefit in my life, I tested it out on all my friends. And of course on my spouse, like looking at his growth pathway from five to eight, I'm like, we're a perfect match in that. Cause if I'm, you know, we've got each other to bounce off of and so I would say, have you ever considered this and give him something that would be great for an eight to do and it would help him. And then I would say like, tell me why that helped you help put words to it. So it, it became very obvious to me 
And then I just looked and looked and looked. I'm like, nobody is doing any work about this intersection. This sucks. I got to find the right Enneagram coach because right now everything I'm seeing is very surface. Right. And, and of course we're on social media looking for people and I would read the books. I'm like, well, it's very obvious to me that these experts writing the books get it, but they're not drawing the straight line. They're talking about it in a very superfluous way. I want someone that will talk directly, put the word grief to it, put the word death and dying to it because it matters. We have to honor the process and we have to honor our entire humanity, even as we are becoming something new every single day through growth and loss. So yeah, finding Melissa and hearing that she'd been looking for someone with grief experience because it kept coming up in her work with clients. They'd get through shadow work and realize this is untended grief. And she's like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so we were so, I was so, we were excited to find each other and uh, it was I mean, that's all, that's all it's, that's the history. That's it. You both were looking for each other. We were. So I, I lost my grandfather. He's my last grandparent. Um, I lost him in November. He had uh, dementia for a long time. So your post on Instagram, I have a screenshot of that. I want to talk about in a minute. Yeah. Um, but it, so by that point, I already had this language thanks to you and Melissa. So I was fully prepared. I was fully prepared, but the day, it doesn't matter how prepared you are, like how, right. like I, I, maybe I shouldn't say prepared. I knew what you expect, right? I knew what you was going to aware. Happen. Yeah. I was aware. I knew what was going to happen in my body. Didn't change the fact that the day of his service, um, I was just in my stress line to eight all day, all day. I could have, I could have killed someone. I was angry, I was big. I was bold. I was demanding. I was beyond aggressive. Um, and I just stayed that way. I just stayed that way. I call my line to eight. My that's my fuck around to find out. Um, I'm like the Kool-Aid man where I was like, boom, break in the door. That's me. But it made me realize and I went back and looked at that series that the two of you did that we do take on our stress line um, characteristics, those lower traits in those moments. So I wanted to know, even if at a high level, if we could kind of go through the nine types and talk about how grief shows up for them. I know when I shared that series that the two of you created, I think last year, um, people were floored. They were like, this is exactly how I show up. This is exactly, and they had no idea. And it gave them that self-compassion, right? Because to your point, it's hard as fuck. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think we do ourselves a discredit when we look at our stress line and panic. Like when we look at our stress number and say, ew, I don't want to do that. It's it's kind of insulting to those people who live in that space and average space, right? Because as an eight, I take on two and five, right? It would be really insulting for me to be like, ugh, I'm being such a five right now. And look at my husband in the eye and be like, I chose you. I love you. I'm committed to you, but also disgusting, gross, ew, bad, right? Like that's not healthy self-compassion. That's not good self-awareness. That's it's gross. And so, yeah, I mean, the high side of eight that you can access as a griever who has awareness of like, oh, I am in fuck around and find out mode. I also know that eights, even when they are in that space, have the ability to be so confident in what they say or what they do that they don't care what people think about themselves, think about them 
unless it interrupts their ability to affect them positively. Right. Like I'm a socialite. So that's where my mind goes. Like I do care, but only because I want someone to trust me so that they can get what they need for themselves. Um, not to be like suspicious of how intensely I'm saying, take this, take this. Um, but like, yeah, so eights have this ability to lean into what they need and to say it without guilt or without justifying it and to see themselves with this new opportunity to take care of themselves as well. So even when you are in that stress line as a two to eight, you get to project what you need and take what you want without that usual, like, mm, but everybody else needs things too. Yep. You are an everybody else. It turns out you are also a person and exactly. that high side of eight is a superpower that you have access to. Right? Hands, hands down. I love my line to eight. It is my, my growth line is four. And I love that too, but my line to eight is my favorite. It's my favorite to tap into. Even when I am in fuck around and find out. And even if it's in a very unaware space, I still feel so empowered. Yeah. I think that that's where, and we can go as deep or as fast through any of these numbers as you want. But I think that that's something that any number can recognize is when you do see yourself in that stress space, it's not about criticizing and gaining, scratching your way back to the top of your average space or going, it's all about self-awareness and growth patterns. And like, what do you want to remember about this experience, about this day? It's okay. If you don't want to do anything, but sit and growl at people who come near you. It turns out that's information that tells you, you need some space. You need rest. You need compassion to where you're not working to take care of everyone else. You need to be cared for. Being able to see ourselves differently instead of with that critical eye that's constantly trying to refine or improve allows us to truly grow in a way that is sustainable in a way that's authentic to what we need and not just what we think we should be doing with the world around us. And so, I mean, it's funny because that, that really speaks to like the three that stresses out and goes to nine, right? Right. That's the three that's trying to make everything happen. When they go into nine, they can say, well, I need rest. I need to settle in and feel something real so that what I'm producing, what I'm wanting to connect with and create in the world is an authentic version of me and not just a mimicry of the things around me that, that I can actually be alone and investigate and know that my identity is not connected to what I do or what I produce, but that it is connected to a core sense of who I want to be in the world. And, and that's, you know, that's a high side of nine is they have this beautiful stillness that is not sloth. It can be, of right. course it can be, but even in that space, when you say, wow, I'm really feeling slothful. I get really frustrated when people say that or call themselves lazy because I'm like, or you're in trauma response because you've been overworked, overproducing and overextending yourself for so long that you don't actually feel like you have the privilege to sit back and rest. You don't feel worried that. Absolutely. And you know, as an eight, I have a really strong seven wing. One of my best friends tells me you're funny because when you're with us, you're a seven wing, but when you're in, the, in charge of things, you're a nine wing. And I'm like, Oh, hundred percent. I have access to both. Why not use them? Right. But it's funny because just, I have been reading like crazy. And I mean, you're on book eight or nine of the year. Oh, honey. I'm on book 17. I'm on book five and thought I was arriving. <laughs> so thanks for just knocking me off my pedestal. <laughs> It's not personal. I read super fast and I 
have not, I was just writing about this before we jumped on to talk. I finished a novel today that I started last night. It was a quick, fast read, like whatever. Um, but this is the first year. I mean, this, this month has been the first time in years that I have sat down with a physical book and felt really safe, not producing and just taking in. And I went on vacation for a weekend to visit family. And I took two thick novels, 500 pages, and I finished them both in four days while with people and like traveling, whatever. And I got home and everyone was laughing at me. I'm like, no, no, no. This is the gift of my space, recognizing that if I need, if I'm stressed, if I'm in low side of five, my high side of five is giving myself permission to retreat, giving myself permission to step back in. I don't have to do this to prove my health or my intelligence or my capabilities. I'm actually going to step back and gain some new perspective, whether I'm reading fiction or nonfiction, this is a chance for me to retreat and reorganize and regain a broader understanding of what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it and relinquish control, right? If I'm reading, I don't really get to control anything around me. I'm actually escaping into a place where I don't have to influence or, or make anything happen, which is a huge, huge access to growth, even though that's a stress response for me. And so, yeah, I mean, I've read 17 books. Only a couple of them have been audiobooks because normally I would just plug in an audiobook read it at three speed because I I'm a crazy person. Um, yeah. So fast. I'll every now and then just pull my earbud out and be like, want to hear what I'm listening to. And it was like, <laughs> but I can follow along and it's fine. He's like, do you really read like that? I'm like, that's how I read on books too. I'm the computer war dentist shoes. Yay me. Um, that might be a reference that very few people understand, but it was a good reference. So I don't care if you don't get it. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's go through the nine, the nine types. And yeah. I, I say real quick, um, I am putting out I, tomorrow. Maybe I came up with a guide, a, the, not the irony, maybe just the alignment of this conversation. I made a guide for really beginner Enneagram work around just getting curious and noticing and becoming aware of your stress line. Yeah. Good. At the end of it, I say, and the next step is to learn to harness the power of your stress line. Cause it's a gift. It is a gift that, that, that they, that line gives us. That's a superpower they're handing us. If we can find a way to harness it in a really good aware way. Um, so I just, I love that we're talking about that because that's an, a very important conversation that goes right along with, with what we're talking about in the grief space. Yeah. Well, and learning to harness it without shame and should, like we were saying earlier, without feeling like, Oh, I, I guess since I'm stressed, I should probably take a look at what my stress number would do if they were stressed out. No, this is about retraining our intuition to listen to who we are and what we need. And that takes awareness of our body, mind, heart, and spirit. It takes intentionality, but it is so beautiful when we actually have the ability to take a step back and, and just observe. And that's one thing with grief work too. It can be really uh, tempting to say, okay, cool. I got all the books regardless of whether or not you can read really well when you're grieving, most people can't. Um, but I've got all the things I've now got a track to run on. I've got a plan to keep, I I've got steps. I'm good. I'm settled. I'm fine. It's going to be great. And, and it's just not true. So I love that your, your series even will go slowly and say, here's awareness first, sit with it without trying to do or produce or resolve anything, get familiar. And from there, 
you can make a plan. And from there, you can become the thing that you want to become and work toward value alignment, which is what I do a lot of work with is around value alignment and grief, but you cannot get there until you know where you are starting and you can't leave where you've left, where you are until you have clarity about why. Otherwise it's a really quick cycle back into it. Yeah. Otherwise it's, I feel like, I don't want to say it's pointless, but it's pointless, right? If you can't, I don't, maybe not pointless, but it's not pointless, but it's, it's self-flagellation. It's yep. repetitive. It's that, oh, it's, it's the, my grandmother's favorite saying when she, they used to own a, an insurance practice. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And I hated the grammar of it when I was younger. And now as a grown up, I'm like, the cadence is important because it sticks in your mind and it will tell you continuing to do the same thing and expecting a different outcome is idiocy. And we are not idiots, but in our pain, we can really get guarded and have clouded judgment. And there's nothing wrong with, it's so human to do that. And we don't have to be superhuman to survive loss. We have to be human to recognize loss and move through it with intention. Yeah. And make space for all of us. Yeah. Yep. You want to do the nine types? Yes. Right. So type ones and grief are going to go towards the lower sides of type four. Yes. So how how literate Enneagram literate would you say your listeners are? I want to honor that and not be, Ooh, this is a very new podcast. So let's do this. Let's do you do a quick high overview of what that number is. And then I'll do an, I'll just hit the, here's what it could look like to take on the high side of your stress line. Okay. So yeah, the type ones, um, in stress and in, in for the context of this also in their grief space, it's going to take on those lower traits of four. So melancholy, those emotions that they have been repressing, those harder emotions they've been repressing or the deeper ones are going to come out. They might burst out. Um, it's going to feel very, they're going to feel misunderstood. Oh my gosh. Potentially resentful, irrational. It probably feels very chaotic to a one to go to that four space. Yeah. And so I would say for four or for a one that's accessing four, the high side of this means that you don't have to find the right answer because a four can handle the tension that two things are true. They actually thrive recognizing that there's tension and that there's inconsistency and that there's something incredibly interesting because you can be healing and still have griefy emotions. You can be thinking along the lines of melancholy and yet still access celebration because you're not broken. This is the place where a four would say, wow, I'm so unique and so interesting and so meaningful. And what I'm going through is, is worth telling uh, the story of. And so I think this is where ones have the ability to recognize that they are already whole. They are already good, that they can put their critic in timeout when they're grieving and say, this is my story. Now, what is my grief experience? Because there are different things. There's a story we tell about our grief. And then there's the reality of the experience we have as we are grieving and our unique story is meaningful and worthy of our compassion while we start healing, but we have to give ourselves space to do that. And I think that that's a superpower within four that ones can access while they're processing. That was incredible. Thank oh, thanks. Beautiful. All right. My people, the twos, we go from the, the people pleasers to, I like to joke and say, we go from 
Mother Teresa to Samuel L. Jackson. Um, very confrontational, very demanding, this big energy. I know I feel it immediately in my gut. Most twos I've talked to have confirmed that as well, that they feel that eightness makes perfect sense. They feel it in their body. Um, demanding, aggressive, can be a bit more explosive in that space. Yeah. And so I actually think, side note, I think Mother Teresa was an eight. Um, and the high side of eight is so, so powerful because there's this, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but there's this accessible compassion that is so guarded against, right? A two is already steeped in compassion for its people, for, for everyone around them. This is the place where the eight has been really guarded against feeling compassion or vulnerability for themselves, because that means touching what hurts and really becoming introspective. But this is a place where you can push back on absolutely everything and everyone, all the demands, all the requirements, and take a look at yourself with true sight, where you can tap into the wisdom of your body and recognize whoa, I am carrying the emotional burden of my entire family. And it's all right here in my neck and my shoulders. An eight is willing to say, I won't thrive. I won't lead well. I won't show up well. If I don't address that, I'll actually perish if I don't address that. And if my heart is to continue showing up and taking care of and loving the people around me, this is the place where a two can say, I'm going to take cues from that eight and take care of myself before I start trying to care for other people because otherwise you burn out, you know, it's a little side story here. My mom died before I knew about any of this. I'm fairly certain she was a two. I could be totally wrong. Um, but like one of her last things she told me was you have to start taking care of yourself. You can't not because as it turns out, as what I thought was an unhealthy three was actually a super healthy eight. <laughs> and so I, at the same time, recognize that I was lacking in my ability to care for myself. And so I think that that two that sees the H that is doing the work on behalf of themselves, that is putting themselves first and is being assertive unto something meaningful, not just unto being a jerk or being in charge, that I think makes all the difference. Absolutely. And I feel like that was a lot of my experience just six mm -hmm. weeks ago with my, my most recent big loss. So yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So type threes are going to take on the lower, the lower energy of type nines. So they're going to go from that high achiever, high doing to, oh my gosh, inertia, right? Like procrastination, going from being really efficient to completely inefficient sometimes, um, lethargic. Yeah. Really reserved. Or, and I think, yeah. And I think that this is where the three gets to start recognizing what celebration looks like for themselves, what rest can look like and what internalizing all of that external promotion and energy and hype, like threes are such good hype men and women for others, right? They just are champions because they see the benefit and being able to turn that energy inward and allow yourself to connect with what your emotional self actually needs means you're no longer just avoiding and performing on behalf of everyone else. I think that Nines have this beautiful way of, well, you know, like the inner gate and the outer gate of the nine protecting all that energy, like that double wall of stay out. Let me, let me be safe here. Um, I actually think that that is such wisdom. It just gets, it just gets perverted on accident when nines are hurting. And so that wisdom that they carry of, I need boundaries that are strong 
is something threes can really access there because then they have the opportunity to say, well, I'm going to say no to that. Even though there's power and prestige attached, I need rest. I need to let my identity and my health come first so that when I show up, I can not only embody whatever it is that's being presented to me, I can actually thrive. I can sustain I can survive whatever this is instead of just performing and making it look like I've got it all together and then secretly falling apart and perishing within. Absolutely. What a beautiful permission nines give threes in that way. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to just be, you can just be. Yeah. What you said earlier, I think you were talking about a two and an eight as friends and I can't remember if you said this off air or on, but I think you're absolutely right. Having a friend that is your stress line, having a good friend that is your stress line and a good friend that is your growth line. Like I'm a big fan of having vulnerable peer relationships anyway, but, uh, it's, it's crucial, especially if you are doing any work to find someone in that space so that you can not take notes by observing them, but that you can say, Oh my God, can you help? This yeah. is what I'm going through. What would you be doing right now? Can I, I just want to experiment and try something new. I feel the exact same way. I have a four and I have an eight and those are my closest people. Yeah. They are my, like, they're my absolute closest humans. And I completely agree. We all need our stress and growth people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So our type fours are going to take on the lower traits of two energy. I wish I was not familiar with, um, you, the fours are going to become very needy. Um, they're going to go from very authentic to pretty inauthentic. Some insecurity, probably quite a bit of manipulation to get those emotional needs met in an indirect way. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of intensity in fours. And so in the grief space, when they're taking on that lower side of two, they become so much more like capital M O R E in a way that's no longer enjoyable and quirky and cute and unique and attractive. It becomes so exhausting because we're trying to keep up and we're trying to still honor that unique perspective, but because they're so comfortable in the melancholy space and you're going to get hate mail for this. I love four so much. Like I, I meet people and I'm like, you're super intense with me, but you're not quite there. You're a four, aren't you? And they're like, yeah, how'd you know? I was like, it's cool. It doesn't matter how I knew we're good. We're going to be each other's people. Um, but many fours struggle to know the difference between grief and melancholy. Grief is an experience. Melancholy is an emotion. And when you can, melancholy is an emotion that has no perceived cause. It's really not attached to something. I've gotten into a lot of internet fights over this, not because I want to hurt someone or tell them you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm like, come over here, stop insisting and hear what I'm saying to see if it affects change for you. Grief is so complicated that to just say fours grieve really well, because we're comfortable with melancholy is doing yourself a disservice because in this space, you cannot rush headlong into melancholy and think that you've grieved. Well, you have to slow down and allow yourself to become very present like a two might do with your feelings instead of rushing through them to get to the next intense feeling that can come along and change the vibe or change the story. Your experience of grief is going to be what alters the way you move through it. And you can't change your experience if you're constantly trying to protect the experience that you like or that feels most familiar. Grief is unfamiliar. That's okay. It doesn't mean that 
oh, well, if I'm grieving, everyone's grieving, then I'm going to grieve the same way. You will not. None of us grieve the same way, no matter how aligned or similar we are. When my sister and I lost our mom, we lost completely different people. That's just the reality. And so for, for fours, that willingness to build connection outside of themselves can create so much grounding for them and invite a lot of health. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. My oh, sister, good. bless my parents' hearts. I'm a sexual two and my sister's a sexual four. Bless, Ooh. bless their hearts. Damn. Your house was big. <laughs> Only heart types. It was a lot. <laughs> All right. Our type fives. My favorite. Love me some type fives. Obviously you do too. Yep. Probably biased. So <laughs> you're going from, oh, such a serene outer energy for them, outer, I'm saying outer, not inner, but a, a very serene outer energy for them to a very scattered, very scattered. They become really impulsive, less intentional with their energy, almost like they've lost control of it. Um, they can become a little validation seeking insecure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because fives are so heady and so intelligent and so articulate when you get them going on something they're passionate about and grief just blows all of that up. It, it takes away their security of understanding what's going on, understanding what they're experiencing, understanding what they know is true. What they know is true has all been blown up because what happened is what they thought was impossible a lot of the time. And so the high side of seven means they get to recognize there is an ease that I normally have the ability to access in the world, right? That I can lean back into because sevens are comfortable in the world. They are often open and they, they appear so easygoing, but that is a true, like in some ways that really is true. And so this gives them the opportunity instead of trying to look inward and find all the answers to then choose to focus outside of themselves and look around and build connection with the world and build connection with resources that um, feel safe and feel like feel curious and interesting without the fear that they're going to be manipulated or harmed or have their energy stolen from them. It really is an invitation to take on that intuitive side of seven that can perceive pretty quickly like, oh, that's a good idea. That's a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea, but I'm in anyway. It gives fives that efficacy or not efficacy, that self um, uh, words, who cares? It gives them the confidence to do exactly what they think will be best for them without having to overthink it really. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A lot yeah. of sense. That sounds very hard. All of this. It's so hard. All of it. All of it. This doesn't sound fun. No, there's not a single type where I've been like, oh, that sounds easier. Nope. Oh, okay, great. Perfect. Also, Thank you. Equally fucking hard. Okay. Mm -hmm. So type sixes, um, they're gonna take on those those lower traits of type three in their moments of stress, especially in grief. So that's gonna look like getting a little bit more less community focused, um, a little more shifting to success, being very image conscious, um aggressive and really restless. Yeah. Yeah. That, that low side of six is so hard because the suspicion is high. And so there's that guarding against absolutely everything, but the reality is they, when they can access the higher side of three, they can also become very certain of all the work they've done, all the information they have, 
confident in any of the actions that they take, knowing that they have cultivated and curated a space that is trustworthy and safe for them. And so even when they're stressed and probably working like way harder than they need to, to function and accomplish a task, right? They also have the ability to then see if the work that they're doing is performative or if it's authentic and truly what they need for growth and healing, as opposed to performing and looking like they're fine. Like, I feel like sixes are abundant and like everywhere in the world, like in the um, entertainment world, we see sixes. I think we see sixes um, demonstrated a lot, especially in all of those like um, movies where the world is falling apart. You see sixes taking action and doing all this stuff, but then you find out, no, they're just doing it because they want to survive. And they're not actually doing it from a place of like, oh, I care about this people group. And so this is important. Um, so I think to wrap this up, I think that this is a place where sixes can like start trusting the work that they're doing and learning their limits of what their brain can actually do. Like learning the limits of how much they can think through a problem to resolve it. Threes will take action. Threes will say, yeah, that sounds good. And they're not necessarily impulsive to a detriment. Sometimes impulsivity is really powerful. And so I think that that's something they can, sixes can access to say, not, well, it can't get any worse, but to just say, I am going to be okay. If you're a six right now and you're listening and you're thinking, and you hear that I'm going to be okay. Like, I felt that in my heart, right? Like what, what a gift that is to sixes, especially in those, their hardest moments, their yeah. absolute hardest moments. Yeah. That's what they're always looking for is to know they're okay. Yeah. Right. Sevens take on lower traits of one. Uh, it's a very, this is one of like the most interesting stress lines to me. Uh, so just because my husband's a seven, but they become very overcritical, like hypercritical, they go from that more fun, loving energy to more rigid, um, a little bit controlling, very intense, like sh again, shifting from that lighthearted energy to a really intense energy and very restless. Yeah. Sevens. I mean, I have a seven wing and, but when I meet a seven in real life, I get so excited because my playful lighthearted side gets to come out. I don't have to be in charge anymore. And so when my sevens are stressed, it just, it makes me so sad because I see that childlike impulsivity that is powerful, that is impressive, that is really something most of us want access to all the time become so repressed. And so I think here when sevens are in one space and they're looking for um, how to protect themselves and how to do what is right so that they don't indulge in the quote, wrong things, you know, or go too far the wrong direction. This is where they can see okay, a one actually has access to rigidity because they have the ability to focus and follow through on a very specific plan that is for their benefit. And so this is where a seven can be like, oh, I can simplify my to-do list down to one task. I can become centered on this one outcome and choose it to make better choices for myself and offer myself compassion and curiosity when I'm like drawn to something that feels good or allows me to bypass what I'm experiencing. And I can center in instead and say like, right now, the right thing for me might be declining that, but I'm also inviting the more attitude of the one that wants refinement, that wants to be whole and that feels that they're not the seven can say like the sevens are already approaching it by saying, well, I, I'm pretty whole. 
you know, they're not necessarily asking that question. And so now this is the space where they can create some healthy limits around what they're contributing to the whole for themselves and some safe boundaries for themselves. Because I think it's really easy for sevens in pain to even dismiss the one side. <laughs> I'm not accessing one. I'm just having a good time. Let my hair down. Nabu, you are doing a lot of drugs or you are behaving really outside of yourself and where you thrive is not by saying that's a bad thing to do. Where you will thrive is by recognizing, is that giving me what I want? Is on the other side of that, I'm becoming the person that I hope to become because here's where you get to draw back and say, well, actually, no. And I have the courage then to say as a one who they have such strong convictions and incredible uh, wherewithal and willpower to, to like cut something off or say, yes, I'm doing this or no, I'm doing access that little seven, because that will give you confidence in knowing that you actually can have temperance and you can hold yourself back from something that's not serving you. Yeah. Healthy limits for sevens. I love that. Mm -hmm. Right. Your people, my people, people go from this, this big energy, this big gut, especially in the gut Mm -hmm. into your head. Um, I'm sorry, take on the lower traits of five from that lower five energy. So that can look like cynicism, distrust, isolating, going from a much bigger energy to a much lower energy, withdrawing, being secretive. You're like, this all tracks. Yeah. Thank (laughs) you for describing my last few years of existence. Yeah. Um, oh man, it's, it's so funny because I have so many eights in my life that as we all started learning about the Enneagram and it was coming to the surface, I mean, and, and you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to look at people and identify their numbers, but I, I read people really, really well. I'm extremely intuitive and attuned with the people that I care about. And I was guessing correctly time and time again with people without like saying to them, this is the number you are. I was just observing and saying, that's gotta be an eight. Ooh, that's gotta be a self-pres eight. Oh, that's gotta be a social seven, you know, whatever it is. And I cannot tell you the number of eights that came out of the woodworks that I was watching grieving so hard, all these different experiences in their lives, because they were working to prove their intelligence, to prove their strength, to prove their dominance, to prove their authority, to prove their, um, qualifications to lead. And when we get into that five space, we're constantly trying to justify that we are in the places we are for the right reasons that we're here and we deserve to be here. And so when we can take a step back and recognize like, we don't have to prove shit to anybody. We're here for a reason and we need to recenter and gain some new perspective because wherever we're looking from has this critical lens that says not enough, not enough will destroy you as you grieve, because there will never be a day where you've grieved enough or where you've learned enough. We were talking about this earlier to um, be finished. So what if the little eight who says I've gathered all this information, it's a chance. This is a chance for me to step back to establish some places where I no longer am in charge, where I can truly take off the mantle of leadership or the, the need to influence or affect change around me. And I can decide I have now the opportunity to gain a broader understanding of what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, and where I want to do it. I can think before I act. I can actually choose to invest my energy in places where I have attunement with the people I'm leading, where I feel inspired and energized by the end of it instead of drained 
and lacking boundaries and lacking the ability to say no. And I think that this is a really, really difficult thing because, you know, an eight doesn't want to say that they need to take a minute to not be in charge of people. I want to say I'm kind of amazing and I can lead no matter what, no matter how empty my cup is. And it's not about vulnerability for me. I'm, you know, I might be unique in that I can talk about vulnerable things pretty easily. I'm not really worried about how it affects what people think of me, but I will say that I think it's more so than guarding their, their vulnerability, they're guarding their worth because they've tied their worth to their ability to serve or control or lead or solve a problem, um, or to know, to really be intelligent and already know the answer. And so, um, I mean, this one is obviously so personal, but I think when I start trying to demonstrate my, my efficacy in something or, or prove that I know what I'm doing, I'm like, pump the brakes, time to close the curtains, time to shut everyone out, time to pick up a book, read and do nothing else and produce nothing because that's a place where the, uh, lack of control over external things allows us to control the internal in a way that serves us effectively and honestly, instead of just for the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Okay. The last one here, never last, never least. I should start with nines at some point. That, that little miss Enneagram viral moment that happened. Yes. I made one that said for nines that said little miss always has to wait for her Enneagram posts. <laughs> just so bad for them. <laughs> you know, it kills Perfect. them. So nines go from this more, like you were saying this guarded, like the double doors, right? This inner, this peaceful inner and outer world, which is what they would really like to prefer um, to the lower traits of six. So becoming a lot more outwardly, um, anxious, really self-doubting. They can get really insecure and and pretty pessimistic in that space. Yeah. And so the high side of, or the low side of nine, when it's accessing six is so precious to me because this is a place where I'm like, man, all you're doing is hiding from what you don't know and what you can't handle. The six is equipped. That six has internalized anxiety to the point where it is a friend, that it is something, a tool to be used, that it can guide you and give you information. And that's one thing with, with all numbers, but with all people, the emotions we experience, the, the bodily sensations we experience, the thoughts that run through our head, these are pieces of information. They're not good or bad. They're not, they're morally neutral. And so if we can separate the high intensity of shaming ourselves or, or wanting to reject our emotions that are heavy, our thoughts that are heavy, our bodily experiences that are heavy, then we can lean in here. And I think nines are uniquely positioned to really teach that to us because um, they have access to heart type. They have access to head type. They are body type. And the energy of the six invites the nine to really speak up for themselves about what they need and put them their energy toward themselves in a way that they might not normally pursue because merging with other people is like the easiest path forward for a nine. Right. So, and this is the opportunity for the nine to say, well, actually all y'all are doing whatever you're doing. This is what I need. This is my chance to not be fine. I am not. Okay. Me just being quiet doesn't mean I have it figured out and I'm settled. It means I am taking this moment to take responsibility for myself, for my own experience in the world and how to be okay. Making the rest of you uncomfortable. 
because I'm uncomfortable. Like that's a big piece in grief work is that we are constantly trying to not rock the boat as grievers. Even in the book I was reading today, there was this uh, moment where the character was like, well, I need to stand up for myself here, but they're already grieving. I don't want to make it worse. I'm like, oh my God, if someone's grieving, then the worst thing that they could imagine has happened to them. That's such a good point. As a two, I have felt that way, right? The people pleasing, I'm like, oh, I don't want to hurt them for, and I don't ever want to hurt anyone, but sure. thank you for that. They yeah. have experienced the hardest thing and you're not doing them any favors. No, you're protecting them out of what you would want instead of asking them what they might want. And I think there's a difference between like asking a griever, Hey, what would be helpful to you? Giving them homework to think about what they might need. And instead asking, I would love to be available to you as a resource. I can give you the information about what I could provide as a resource. If that's something that you want. Um, but, but learning to rock the boat as a griever sometimes does look like the eight saying Look around and find out. Sometimes it looks like the nine saying, no, I'm good. Sometimes it looks like the seven going wild and everyone's like, oh, they're obviously not doing well. No, actually they might be doing really well. That one thing might be the thing that they've given themselves permission to explore because it is serving them well. What we don't need as grievers is your judgment. And honestly, we start with ourselves first. We judge ourselves so harshly for the way that we function or respond in grief. Instead of recognizing this is normal, we have permission to be whatever we need to be in this space because it's not going to look the same as anyone else. And the more that we can decide, I'm going to be curious towards this, this response internally, this expression externally, I'm going to be curious and compassionate toward myself. The more we will start to recognize when we are accessing our stress lines, when we are saying, Oh, damn, I am performing like crazy. I didn't mean anything I just said. I didn't want anything they just agreed that I just agreed to. And I don't know how to do it or say anything else because I don't want to upset the person. Listen, you're upset. Do you deserve to be un not upset as well? Yeah, sure. You're not trying to harm anyone, like you said, but you also deserve to be heard and seen and known. And if people are offering to help you, whether they realize they have capability to do it or not, they want to see, know, and, and love you and show up for you. So denying them that opportunity when they are your person that you've invited in is inauthentic. And that's, that's not what you're going for either. And so, yeah, grievers that get them, give themselves that space, have an opportunity to do this work, do the shadow work of Enneagram way more with way more present mindedness than I think others would necessarily who are just coming and saying, Oh, this is a cool personality test, or this is a cool framework to get to know myself better. It absolutely is. But when your shadow work comes up, if you don't have that willingness to say, Oh, this is going to fuck up a lot in my life. Oh no. Like when people are like, oh, I'm getting into the Enneagram. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> bless your heart. Don't just pick an Instagram account and stick with it. Like do the work, read your books. We are Instagramming because it is catchy and pithy, but it starts a conversation. It can never be the end of it. And so these, you know, all of the resources that are out there, it's such a, a an incredible opportunity to really decide, well, let's see what would happen if I grieve differently this time. Yeah. No. And I want to be very mindful of your time. I know we've gone over a little bit and you have, Ooh. you have to eat. I want to let you eat. Um, I did want to ask. So at the bottom of the show notes for this episode, I will have links to all your things, your podcast, your Instagram. It's going to be like 30 links. You have so many fucking links. In addition to your personal resources that you offer for grief, 
Is there anything outside of the Mandy Capehart resources mm-hmm. that you feel really tied to? And if not, that's okay too. You know, it's hard because there are so many different grief resources that I have utilized and and they all serve a specific purpose. So I think right now my current favorite, there's a couple of them, the Brian, oh, I'm going to blow up the name. Let me look it up real quick. And I'll talk about this other one while I'm looking for it. So uh, I really love the Dougie Center. They are in, out of Portland, Oregon, and they are focused on children who are grieving. It is so imperative. And, and recently on the podcast, we've talked a lot on my podcast, um, about children who are grieving and how to talk to your kids or how to go through all of that with, um, with compassion, but also clarity because kids are going to hurt and we're not going to give them credit and we're going to think they're resilient and just cross over it and whatever. And it's just so not fair because they absolutely need freedom to move through it and be honest and, and express, and it's going to be awkward and terrible. And the Dougie Center is an incredible resource for it. I really, really, really love it. Um, the other one- For grief at such a young age, yeah. to have that knowledge and to carry that throughout your life, mm-hmm. I can't imagine. You know, it's really difficult because you have to be age appropriate, right? Like my daughter's very aware that my mom died. We talk about grief all the time. I try to keep it as age appropriate as possible, but she also witnessed me grieving in ways that I didn't, you know, at the time know I was doing, or I didn't realize who I was at the moment. We all do this. Right. Um, but I think that the benefit now is that I can then turn around and say, hi, that friend that you're having a trouble with, they, they might be grieving something they don't know about if they've had trouble in their family, or maybe they've lost someone. We don't recognize grief in ourselves a lot of the time. And so I think that that's, that's the benefit too. Plus again, grief literacy, right? We have to chain up the, the generation behind us to have more and access more than we did. And so, uh, she hopefully will not just resent me for living in this household when she's older and be like, God, all we talked about was mental health and grief. I'm like, I'm, I'm sure you're better for it. Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, the other organization I really love is Brian Daigle foundation. Um, they're out of Connecticut and they're a nonprofit that does amazing educational work in their immediate community, but also online. They have a ton of free resources and um, chats that they come up with every, I think every month they do a live conversation online with authors and with grief professionals, um, especially around suicide prevention and postvention, which I do a lot of postvention um, work in my community as well too. And so that is something that is really, really valuable to me. I think that again, like where grief is the thing we don't want to talk about. We really don't want to talk about death and dying and the process of that, but we really don't want to talk about suicide. And so, um, of course may try to, you know, attribute it to my eightness, but I really want to talk about all of those things because I don't want us to be blindsided and say, well, no one told me it would hurt like this. Well, no one knew what you were going through. Yeah. Let us in. Let, let, let yourself be seen and known so that you can be loved in the way that you deserve and the way that will make you feel alive and create meaning in your life. Those are the two that come to mind. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for all of this, for the conversation before we got on this whole conversation. I have, I could talk to you for six more hours. I have to let you go, but 
I've loved this. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It was an honor. And I hope that everybody hearing this is not like, cool, I'm grieving. Thanks for pointing this out, but feels actually like empowered to say, okay, damn, this hurts. What's a baby step I can take instead of thinking, well, now I need to go chase down all those resources. You know, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to Amy. There's lots of resources, of course, that we can direct you to. And when I'm not thinking on the spot, I have lots more that I can bring up as well, but that, that, you know, that's the end of it. We talk about, I talk about grief all the time, but I don't want ever someone to feel so overwhelmed that they're not sure what to do next. Um, yeah. So if anybody's hearing this and feels like, okay, I would like to know what a next step is. I'm happy to work with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for for having me. Yes. 